We will uh, begin with prayer because we're talking about God tonight, and you don't want to get that wrong, right? You don't want to. So let's pray, Heavenly Father. Uh, we humble ourselves before you and say we need your Holy Spirit to teach us and to help us because we're talking about you and your relationship, your eternal relationship with your Son Jesus, and. Spirit's involvement, just the relationships that uh, are there in the Trinity, and we don't want to get that wrong. So we ask you to help us, especially as we look at the Nicene Creed. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start once again by reading the Nicene Creed because I just love it so much. And I hope you begin loving it as well. So it's on your notes there. It says, We believe in one God, Father, all sovereign. Maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered, and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead, and in one Holy Spirit. And to those who say there was once when he, Jesus, was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or who affirm that the Son of God is of another nature or substance or a creature or mutable or subject to change, such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. So recall from last week how we started the Nicene Creed starts off stressing monotheism, the belief that we believe in one true God. And then it moves to speak of God the Father, and then it moves to speak of God as creator. And now we move on to see what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus. So we're going to be talking about these phrases here about the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten. Tonight we're going to be talking about something that is called the eternal generation of the Son. Eternal generation of the Son of God. Eternal generation of the Son. That's what Nicaea is getting at here. This is likely um, one of the most important doctrines that you probably have never heard much about. It has fallen on hard times in recent years. So what is the doctrine of eternal generation? And just let me warn you ahead of time. We're getting into deep waters here. So I hope you stretched your brains before you came in here. But what do we mean when we say that Jesus is eternally generated from God the Father. The doctrine of eternal generation is part of the study of the Trinity. It's part it's the part that talks about the relation of the Father, God the Father to his son Jesus and it teaches us that the son is always from the Father. That the co-equal, co-eternal son of God has always stood in a relationship with the Father and being from Him, and yet not in a way that we say that Jesus was created by the Father. Because that's what Arius said, right? Arius said Jesus was created by the Father. That's how He came from the Father. So we don't mean that when we speak of Jesus and when the Creed speaks of Jesus as being from the Father. So when the Nicene Creed says that Jesus is begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We need to understand when you get all these froms that this fromness is different than the other kinds of fromness, that's a made up word I guess, that we see in scripture. Okay, so for instance, we can say that creation is from God, right? But we don't mean that creation has the same nature as God, right? Or when James says in James 1.17, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We don't mean that every good thing that God gives us is like God and has the same nature as God, just because it comes from God, right? Everybody tracking with me? Jesus, the Son, is not from God the way that creation is from God or the way that blessings come from God. So there is a difference in this fromness that the Council of Nicaea is getting at. And that is what is at the heart of the eternal generation of the Son or the eternal begottenness, you could say that, or the eternal fromness of the Son of God. It's this eternal begottenness. The Son never began to be from the Father, and He will never cease to be from the Father. He is God from God, light from light. This is the doctrine of eternal generation. So, if there was ever a time when Jesus the Son began to be the Son, then that means there was a time when the Father began to be the Father, right? If there was a time when Jesus... Like at a point in time, he became the son of God. Then that means the father became the father when the son became the son. And we know that's not true. God has always been father. Therefore, he has always had a son. And this is what Nicaea is saying. And when you read church history, you find the doctrine of eternal generation was central to the church's confession of the Trinity. You see it full blown in the fourth century, like here at Nicaea. It was a doctrine that was discussed a lot by the early church fathers, uh, by the medieval theologians, and then even into the Reformation and post-Reformation periods. But it has fallen on hard times in recent years. Why haven't we heard of the doctrine of eternal generation? You've heard of the Trinity, right? You've heard that Jesus has two natures, right? God and man united in one person. You've heard many other doctrines, but why isn't this doctrine more widely known? Why isn't it at the center of Trinitarian discussions and studies? Partly because of something that theologian B.B. Warfield said. Anybody ever heard of B.B. Warfield? He was called the Lion of Princeton back when Princeton Seminary was a seminary that you wanted to send your kids to. Uh, He's a well-known reformed theologian, a solid theologian. This is someone you want to read, B.B. Warfield. But he said something that kind of sucked the air out of Trinitarian studies in an article that he wrote in 1915. And he had three main points about the Trinity that were in this article. And this is what they were. Number one, there is but one God. Number two, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each God. Number three... The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. We would agree with that, wouldn't we? That's that's biblical. But then Warfield said this. When we have said these three things, we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. But is that all there is to say about the Trinity? Is that a robust and full enunciation of the Trinity? I would say no. So Warfield's summary actually lacks the completeness he claims for it. Specifically, Warfield omits any mention of these so-called personal properties. And if you, if you read up in Trinitarian studies, you'll come across this phrase, personal properties. So Warfield doesn't say anything about the personal properties within the Trinity, those things that distinguish each member of the Trinity from one another. And so the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, gets at this in question 10 uh, when it asks this. It says, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? And the answer is, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son... That's his personal property. And to the Son to be begotten of the Father, that's his. And to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son, from the Father and the Son, from all eternity. So those are the personal property, the, the, the inner relationships within the Trinity. And Warfield left these out in his very 
simple uh, explanation of the Trinity. And so if we limit our discussion to Warfield's summary, then this is what we lose. We lose the Father's eternal begetting of His Son, which you'll see sometimes written as paternity. So we, we lose this, uh, this eternal begetting uh, of the Son from the Father. If we go with Warfield as well, we lose the Son's eternal generation. Sometimes you'll see it uh, written as filiation. We lose that. And then thirdly, and I'm going to give you a fancy word here, we lose the Spirit's eternal procession from the Father and the Son. Inspiration. Uh, there you go. Fancy word you can use to impress somebody. That's the Spirit being sent forth from the Father and from the Son. So, we can say, like Warfield said, that the following is true of the Trinity. There is but one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. But there's also so much more we should say, especially when you're talking about the relationships within the Trinity. And so the Christian church confesses that within the eternal depths of God's being, there is a person of the Godhead who stands in relation of a father to the son. Who is that? It's God the Father. And there is a person in the Trinity who stands in the relation of a son to the father. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. And there is a person who is breathed forth, if you will, in the mutual love of the father and the son. And that is the Holy Spirit. So this is why we can't just simply reduce the Trinity to what B.B. Warfield said, because the personal properties that we see within the Trinity, the paternity, the filiation, the spiration, uh, these further enrich and expand our understanding of who God is. They, they show us what God is like within the relationships of the Trinity. And they help us experience uh, the Trinitarian God in these ways. One, the Trinitarian relationships help us see the eternal covenant of redemption that flows from and expresses this deep and mutual eternal delight and joy of God to save sinners. So what is the covenant of redemption? Has anyone ever heard of the covenant of redemption? covenant I'll let, I'll let Danny how to explain uh, he says from all of eternity God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit covenanted to share their eternal love and fellowship with their creatures so this is happening in eternity past they've covenanted together in human terms God the Father covenanted to create a people whom he knew would sin, and to choose from this fallen mass a great multitude that no one could number, and to give them to Christ, whom he, the Father, would crush on the cross according to his eternal will. The Son covenanted to accomplish their redemption, and the Holy Spirit covenanted to apply the work of the Son to those the Father chose. So, Part of this, these uh, personal properties that the relationship we see within the Trinity is this covenant of redemption in eternity past where the Trinity, where God said, this is what we're going to do. And so at the heart of redemption, at the heart of salvation, lie these close relationships within the Trinity. They also help us to see that the Father who has eternally begotten and eternally a beloved son also wills to bring many other sons to glory. So our adoption as God's son, sons are linked to these relationships, specifically the father and the son. They also help us to see that the father's sovereign plan, the father's only begotten son, has willed to become a human being, to live a perfect life, keep God's law on our behalf, and suffer on the cross for our sins and thus accomplish our redemption. So what Jesus did for us, we see back in eternity past in the covenant of redemption. And then finally, they help us to see that the Holy Spirit, who eternally proceeds in the mutual love of the Father and the Son, 
He equipped Jesus with all things necessary to bring about our redemption. And the Spirit now applies all the blessings of adoption to us, uniting us to Jesus. And the Spirit welcomes us into this fellowship, which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed in eternity past. And now we get to get in on this love and this joy that's happening between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that's what we miss out on if we just go with a very simple explanation of the Trinity without expanding the conversation out further. So it's not as simple as Warfield suggested. If we reduce it to his three points, we lose all of this richness. Okay, we'll open up some questions in a moment if you have some. But back to the eternal generation of the Son. Some people say we don't need this doctrine anymore. You can be Trinitarian without it. And so that's the kind of attitude that has led to the doctrine of eternal generation not being on the front page of evangelical Trinitarian theology. And if you look at a number of textbooks from the 20th century, they will discuss the Trinity without discussing the eternal generation of Jesus from the Father at all. They're just kind of content to uh, regurgitate what B.B. Warfield said. So I want to help retrieve this doctrine for the church. And I've been helped by many people in this regard. And if you're interested in studying this more, I'm still working my way through it. But there's a book called Retrieving What? Eternal Generation by Scott Swain, who teaches at Reformed Seminary, and Fred Sanders, who teaches down at Biola. And so this is a bunch of articles on the doctrine of eternal generation and what these terms mean. And so we're really just scratching the surface tonight. We could take weeks and weeks on this. Uh, But I want us to get to the Cappadocian Fathers after this, so we're not going to stay on this too much long. But here's a book. In fact, I'm going to give it. I'll give you... uh, a handout in just a minute that has this book uh, on it. So it's fantastic, it's deep, and uh, it's really what's at the heart of the, the Council of Nicaea that we've been looking at. So what is eternal generation? And what does generation mean, especially if it's eternal? Well, we know from biblical revelation that you've got the Father and the Son, and they're not each other, right? And they're not two different gods. And so once you kind of figure all that out, you ask the question, what's the difference between the Father and the Son? If everything that the Father is, the Son is also, do we agree? Mm -hmm. Okay, he's God. If everything that the Father is, the Son is, except for being the Father, right? Jesus can't be the Father, but he's everything that the Father is, except... He can't be the Father. Then what does that mean? Here's what we affirm when we say that the Father and the Son are distinct persons. And the classic answer has been this. From eternity, within the unity of the life of the one God, the Son has always stood in this relationship of fromness to the Father. So when we're speaking of eternal generation, we're speaking of the person of the Son. We're not speaking of his essence or his nature ultimately. If the Son's essence or nature is generated, meaning if Jesus gets his nature from God, um, then that means he's what? Created, right? If he, if he gets it from God, like I don't have it and you made me and now I get it, he's created. The divine nature is ungenerated. So what we're speaking about here is the Father's relationship to his Son as a person. We're not speaking about Jesus' essence being generated in that he was made or created, like Arius said. So, is there a way to be more specific as to what it means that the Son is from the Father and yet is self-existent and equal? Yes, but it's easier to speak negatively than positively about what's happening here. It's easier to say what eternal generation is not than what it is. It's easier to say it's not a generation that has a beginning in time. His begetting doesn't have a beginning in time, does it? So we're not saying that Jesus began in time um, because he didn't. He is eternal. He is from the Father and equal to the Father. The Son is from the Father, but the Father is not from the Son, right? We see that in Scripture, and yet they're both one God. 
So if the doctrine of eternal generation says that the person of the Son is eternally from the Father, then that shapes our understanding of the Son's actions because as He is eternally from from the Father, so He in time also acts from the Father. And so everything that Jesus does, He does as the one God with the Father and the Spirit, but He does all that He does as Son from the Father. He comes in mission from the Father. He says that. He is sent by the Father. He says that. All that he does is from the Father. So, we'll get questions here in a minute. Uh, And maybe you don't have any. Maybe your brains are just being stretched. And that's okay. (laughs) Everything the Father has, the Son has. Except being the Father. So the distinction between the persons of the Trinity is limited to begetting proceeding and being begotten, but not authority and submission, okay? The distinction between the persons of the Trinity has to do with this begetting from the Father, this proceeding from the Father, this also this sending, like the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. That's the distinction there, and not authority or submission. And that's very important to understand, We're not talking about roles of authority and submission. And so the vacuum caused by people following B.B. Warfield and leaving out eternal generation and eternal procession was filled with the language of authority and submission. This gave us what is known as the eternal subordination of the Son. Eternal, it goes by several names. I'll give you a handout with all the names in a minute. The, the eternal subordination of the Son. You'll see it written as uh, ESS sometimes. There's several. I don't know why theologians just don't pick one thing and say, when we're talking about it, let's call it that. But they've got four or five ways of saying it because that's just what they do, right? Okay, so in this vacuum uh, that B.B. Warfield created, you then get this language Uh, Instead of talking about personal properties, you get language that's now talking about submission and authority within the Trinity. And this is a teaching, we're going to talk about it more in a moment, that teaches that Jesus has always submitted to the Father in eternity past. As if there is some sort of structure where God the Father is in charge and Jesus submits to him, and the Spirit submits to Jesus, who then submits to the Father. And so this is what was kind of inserted into this vacuum, is that you have, instead of personal properties, you have the language of submission and authority. So stay with me before you condemn me as a heretic, okay? <laughs> Eternal generation establishes the distinction between the Father and the Son, and preserves equality within the Godhead. So the Son and the Spirit are equal in power and glory with the Father, correct? Mm -hmm. Is the Spirit uh, equal in power and glory with God the Father? Is the Son equal in power and glory with God the Father? Yeah. So this is what, again, to quote uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 9, which came before number 10, says, How many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Notice, they are distinguished by their personal properties of Father, Son, and Spirit, and not distinguished by roles of authority or submission. So... This equality of power and glory is lost when eternal generation is replaced by an eternal relationship of authority and submission. So proponents of, uh, it's, I'll, I'll give you the handout here, it's eternal subordination of the sun is one way to talk about this. Eternal functional subordination, EFS, or eternal relationship of authority and submission. So these are, this, these are the, the phrases that, that you talk about when you start talking about 
if there is uh, authority and submission within the Godhead. So let me ask you, let me tell you kind of where, uh, let me tell you, I used to hold this position because all the guys that I read held this position. Wayne Grudem holds this. Anybody heard of Wayne Grudem? Yeah. Famous systematic theology. He holds to the eternal subordination of the Son. And Bruce Ware, uh, who's, who has a, uh, if you follow this line of thinking, has a great book on the Trinity. It's on your paper, I believe. Uh, then you've got people on the other side of the fence. Uh, so just so you don't think I'm a heretic. Has anybody heard of and they respect R.C. Sproul? Raise your hand. Okay, so R.C. Sproul is on the other side of the argument, okay? So unless you think I'm a heretic, R.C. Sproul believes this. In fact... Several years ago, and I'm going to try to order some of these for you. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's a part of, put out the Ligonier Statement on Christology. Talking about what does it mean that Jesus became a man. The eternal Son of God became a man. Had two natures and they're united together. And so they came out with this uh, Christology Statement probably five years ago, maybe six. I can't remember. But you know how we've talked in here about how we learn and grow in our, our theology and we have to be humble? They eventually came back and said, we left out something that we should have added. So after this came out, they then went back and inserted something as in Article 2, which is this. It's a denial of the eternal subordination of the Son. It says, we deny, and then we'll unpack what that means. I just want you to to know that if I'm a heretic, at least I'm going down with R.C. Sproul, okay? <laughs> we deny that the Son is merely like God or that he was simply adopted by the Father as his Son. We deny that. We deny the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father in the ontological trinity. And so when we're talking about God's ontology, we're talking about his being, his Essence, okay? So well, if you guys want to spend some time talking about this, we can. Um, so where did the eternal subordination of the Son come from? Okay? They're reading Scripture. They're reading passages like Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Right? They're reading passages like that. But you also have this pressure from culture with something that's called uh, egalitarianism. Anybody know what that is? Legalism. Uh, but it could be, uh, let me write this word up, I can't write this big word and talk at the same time. <laughs> Egalitarianism. It has to do with gender roles and, and things like that. And on the other side of this, you have complementarianism, which is what we would affirm here, that God has gifted men and women differently, and there's certain roles that they can't, can and can't do within the church. Uh, you know, husbands are to love their wives, wives are to submit to their husbands, that kind of language. And so complementarianism, trying to say that, you know, we can, there's complementary roles in marriages and relationships like that. Complementarianism, and that's an even bigger word. Uh, complementarianism, I think was feeling the pressure and the threat of egalitarianism, and they're thinking, how can we combat this belief system that says, hey, if women want to be pastors, they can be pastors. God's word doesn't say that. Why do wives have to submit to their husbands? I'm, I'm you know, breaking it down very generically. So in response to this, complementarianists are thinking, how can we combat this so it doesn't sweep through our churches and stay true to God's word? And so somewhere along the way, they start thinking, they take those words where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I, and they start thinking, hey, maybe there's this order or structure in the Trinity where the Father is number one, and the Son is number two, and the Spirit is number three. And they're saying, if the Son submits to the Father, then we can say, wives, you need to submit to your husband, and submission is not a bad thing, because see, the Son, in eternity past, has always submitted to the Father. And the Spirit has always submitted to the Son, and so forth. And so, kind of a way to challenge that, they're trying to find things that are happening in the, the relationship within the Trinity in order to combat what some people would call uh, 
liberalism creeping into the church. And so they're saying in eternity past, Jesus has always submitted to the Father. Okay? But think about this. How, how many wills does God have? There are three persons. Are there three gods? No, there's one God. No, one God. Okay. How many wills does God have? One. One. Right. Because God is one. So you don't have competing ideas within the Trinity, right? So if the Son is having to submit to the Father, what do you end up having? You end up having Jesus having like another will saying, I have to submit my will to you because I just want to go over here, but I'll submit. And so that kind of gave birth to this idea of the eternal subordination of the Son, linking it in eternity past. Instead, I think that what they should have said was complementarian is, is, hey, we've got God's word. And it says, I'll get you in just a second, Russ. We've got God's word, and it says husbands, our wives should submit to their husbands. And we should just take God's word as it is, instead of trying to find it back into the nature and essence of God and who he is. Okay, questions on that? Or uh, hey, Russ? <laughs> uh, yeah. Just one, I think I know where, where you'll go with it, but what about when Jesus said in the garden? Yeah. Not my will, yeah. but your will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the difference there is how many wills does Jesus have? Two. Well, and, and Father, take this come from me. Father, forgive them for they know. Why doesn't he just say, I forgive them? Yeah, because Jesus has two wills. He is God and man, and those two natures are united together in one person. And so in the garden, in his humanity, Jesus is saying, I don't want to do this. But as God, what is Jesus saying? This was our eternal plan. This is the plan. I know the plan. So it wasn't like Jesus like, man, I was, it wasn't like Jesus is in the garden saying, Father, I didn't think you were going to go through with it. I, mean, I know we talked about this in eternity past, but really? Jesus in his humanity is struggling. So when you have submission language of Jesus submitting to the Father in the scriptures, you're talking about his submission as a human being in his incarnation, in his humanity, not something that goes back into eternity past. So all these passages where Jesus is saying, not my will, your will, I want to submit to you, the Father is greater than I. That's talking about Jesus, if we can kind of draw this here. That's talking about Jesus in his humanity. He is saying, I, and so this is like eternity past, okay? He's saying, I, in this moment of incarnation, in my humanity, I am submitting to the Father. Not something that I've done in eternity past, because in eternity past, there's only been one will of God. Right? There's no competition. There's no Jesus going rogue. You know, the Father thinking, oh, I was hoping you wouldn't do that. It's not like Jesus is saying, fine, I'll submit to you. He, there's always been one will, one unity and likewise, because God lives inside of us, right? Mm -hmm. We are, we have to submit and be obedient yeah. as Jesus' example was with his flesh, he was, became obedient. Just as our flesh fights the Holy Spirit to be obedient, we likewise yeah. have to be obedient yeah. as Christ was. Yeah, the difference being that Jesus didn't sin and was perfect um, and couldn't sin, although they were real temptations. But you're right, in the same way. So I don't think we have to go back into eternity past to say that we need to submit to God, we need to submit to government, anything like that. We look at Jesus and his humanity and we see him doing that and we say there's our example, not necessarily going into eternity past. To try Now, the men who hold to eternal subordination of son, I've benefited greatly from. Like I said, I used to hold this view. Never even heard the other view. Like I said, there was a vacuum created in Trinitarian studies. And then one day you read something and you're like, I think I'm a heretic. <laughs> I'm not saying these people are heretics, okay? But there are some people who say those people are heretics. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say they're heretics. Perhaps... Perhaps they are in error in their understanding, and they need to learn and grow. They're men. What's that? They are men. Yeah, they're men. They're, yeah. they're not God. They're, they're not men. God. 
And so they have an understanding of the way they interpret things, yeah. and you get a lot of men, and they all have their own way of interpreting yeah. things, but the scripture says that God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an attempt. Yeah, it's an attempt to understand God. But this is why I think the Nicene Creed is important because as we go along, the Nicene Creed is hammering this stuff out and saying, "This is who Jesus is in His essence and nature as Son." And so, I have great respect for these men. I just think uh, a little more. And and they came back and recant. You can. There was a big Trinity debate in 2016 and 17. And you can come back and you can Google Wayne Grudem on this. And he made some adjustments. But still, people are like, ah, he didn't go all the way. And so you can just Google Trinity debate 2016. Or actually just Google this eternal subordination of the sun. And boom, you'll be busy for days. Okay? <laughs> Don, yeah. I, I have a couple of questions and a comment. Uh, the spiration, you're talking about the Holy Spirit coming from are you saying that this was from the Nicene Creed? No, no, I'm saying this. that's from Scripture. It's just, oh, okay. the, yeah. Um, that's like John 15 saying, I'm going to send the Spirit. But also, how about the Holy Spirit also proceeding from the Son? Yes, yeah. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, he's proceeding from both, both, like the Westminster Confession says, from the Father and from the Son. Okay, I have a question that I, I, I would term in my mind, but it might not mean what I think yeah. it means. Yeah, yeah. Feel okay? Does that mean I know the term, and does that have to do with, is it related I, to filiation, I think? I thought maybe, it was spiration. I, maybe, I know the term. Um, we'll get back to it. Okay. <laughs> I should know that. This, that I can spell it. Trend, right? <laughs> uh, um, foggy. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they're going to talk more about the spirit later. We'll talk more about this later. Uh, right now in the church, in the fourth century, they're just dealing with the Son of God and what that means. They're in time, they're going to they're gonna then talk about the Spirit. So that will be for later. Um, yeah. Was the Nicene Creed not written by men? It was. It was by about 300 and... Oh, do you guys remember the number? About 320? 325. Yeah, 325. I mean, yeah, yeah. There... Well, they're men. It's, it's not scripture. Right. But what we're looking at is we've got church, we have pastors and elders and presbyters and bishops coming from all over uh, the land to come together. And they are agreeing. There were two dissenters who were friends of Arius who said, we don't believe that. All coming together and saying, after three months of studying, saying, this is what we have. And so... We think that here in this church, we think the creeds and the councils are important because they give us these kind of parameters to stay within. Were they men who are putting words together? Yes. Are the words scripture? No. But it's no different than a pastor preaching on Sunday morning in that he's speaking truth. Do we, in one sense, it's God's word in that it's the preached word, but I would rather you memorize a verse that I quote in a sermon than some phrase that I memorize. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you want, uh, there's information on your sheet there on uh, both sides of the argument, books you can buy if you're interested in reading those. The bottom one, I think, is by uh, The Son Who Learned Obedience. I have not read that. Um, I've listened to Glenn, several podcasts he's on, follow him on Twitter, read, read his tweets over the last three or four years. So without reading that book, I think I can recommend that book to you. Okay. So he's going to talk about even that phrase, what does it mean that, this, that Jesus learned obedience that talks about in Hebrews. So anyway, those are some resources for you to study. We got a little bit more to fly through here so we can get to the Cappadocian fathers. Okay, so back to Nicaea. We have uh, begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And so what they're saying about Jesus is very important here. And here's the question of Nicaea. What are you supposed to do with the term son? Because the moment you refer to a son, you refer to the term begotten. And the moment you refer to a son, you refer to his begottenness. Because all sons have fathers, right? And so what is this relationship between son and father? 
Every son has a father. And, and this was Arius's problem. Arius said, son means begotten. That's the logical connection. And begotten means created or made, according to Arius. And if you call Jesus son, then you're saying he is created and that he is made. We don't believe that, but that's what Arius was saying. Arius was saying you can't have an eternal son because sons are temporarily related to their fathers, meaning the father comes first and then the son comes later, right? So if you want to call Jesus son, then you have to call him begotten. And if you call him begotten, then you must admit that he was created or made, right? Because you can't be a father until what? You have a son. And so Arius was saying if you call him son then you're going to say that he was made at some point in time. And we obviously don't believe that. But son is not a biblical term that we can run from, is it? Is, is son in the Bible? Can we be distinctively Christian without acknowledging that there is a son of God? No. It's a biblical term that we can't get away from. It's like the boogeyman. It's all over scripture. It's going to get you. Jesus is God's son. He's said begotten. Begotten. No. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Begotten is okay. Arius was just saying, if you say begotten or son, then you end up saying that Jesus was created. So that's his logic. So begotten is a good word. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Um, so here's the challenge before Nicaea. To define Christianly what it means to be begotten. So if we call him begotten, how do we say it in a way that is Christian and not Arian, and that's what Nicaea is trying to do. They are unashamed in their use of the, the terms son and begotten. You can see it there, the son of God, begotten from the father as only begotten. So they don't want to run from these terms, even though Arius is misusing them. They are shouting them from the rooftops, and they're not backing away. We believe he's the son. We believe that he is begotten. We're not afraid to use those terms, even though you use them, Arius, because these terms are in Scripture. So... What does it mean that Jesus is begotten? He's only begotten, eternally begotten. It means that you have the same essence or nature as something. So let me explain it this way. My six children are from the same essence and nature as me. I'm a human being, so guess what they are? Human beings. We share the same essence or nature. They are begotten from me because humans beget humans and I'll, I'll give you a little soft pitch. Everyone can answer it. And dogs beget what? Dogs. dogs. <laughs> Heather gave birth to six humans. Now, when they became teenagers, we often wondered <laughs> if they were human. Did we really make these? How can they eat pizza for five days straight? How can they eat Takis every day? You know what Takis are? Those hot, spicy chip things. How could they eat them all? All day. How do they not want to go to bed at 9 p.m.? Because I want to go to bed at 9 p.m. Who are these things that are called teenagers? Are they really begotten from us? Yes. So the six Magnus kids in our house are from our same essence and nature. They are human beings and we could try as hard as we can, but Heather will never give birth to a giraffe. All that can come from us are human beings. And so here's the point of Nicaea. To be begotten means that you share and you are from the same essence as the one who beget you. It means that you are the exact nature as your father. But it doesn't mean that Jesus was created though, does it? It just means he has the same essence and nature. So when we say that Jesus is God's only begotten son, we mean that he's from the same essence as the Father. He's equal in power and glory and no eternal subordination. So Nicaea is saying, rather than a title, Son of God, that shows the difference between the Father and the Son, it actually shows that they're actually the same. When you say Son, you're saying He is the same as the Father. So listen to the uh, creed again and listen for that preposition. The Son of God begotten from the Father as only begotten that is, from the substance of the Father. What does that mean? From the substance, from the same nature and essence. He's, he's his God. Substance yeah. is his, nature. his nature, his essence, who he is. Uh, he, he's not a cat. He's not a dog. He is God. 
from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. See, they're getting at Arius there. He's begotten, but that does not mean that he was made of the same essence, one in with the Father. Now, notice the emphasis on the preposition from there. There is a distinction of persons. He is God, but he is God from God. He is light, but he is light from light. He is true God, but he is true God from true God. It's like your children if you have them. They're from the same essence or nature as you, but they, there's distinct persons, right? We have six kids from our nature, but we're distinct. You can distinguish your kids from you, even though you all have the same nature. What does John say in his gospel? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was what? With God. And the Word was what? God. Yeah, he's with God, and he's God. Notice the sameness and the distinction. He's with God, and he's God. He's with God means there's distinct persons, and he is God, which is the sameness. He is not identically the same person as the Father. He is the Son. He's not the Father. He's with the Father, but he's also God. And so to be begotten means to be same and from. The difference between us and our children and God as his Son is that God is God and he is not like us. He's identical with the Father in nature, but not in person, right? And that's the key to understanding what Nicaea is getting at. When Nicaea says that Jesus is begotten, it means that he is identical in nature. He is God, but he's different in person because Jesus is not the Father and he's not the Spirit, right? Now, can I give you an example from creation that makes it very clear that Jesus, the Son, is eternally begotten? No. Can I give you an example from creation that shows you someone that is identical and yet different in the same way that Jesus is with the Father? I can't because we're dealing with one God and we're dealing with eternity, this eternal begottenness. We're dealing with the eternal God. And so we don't know much about those things, but we know enough. And so when we speak of Jesus being eternally begotten from the Father... There isn't anything in creation that I can point to and say, that's what eternal begottenness looks like. And so we have to receive it by what? Faith. Because this is what we receive from Scripture, right? This is what Scripture is telling us. God does not belong under a microscope or in a test tube. And so does it bother me that science cannot point, come up with something that is begotten? And eternal? Not at all. It doesn't bother me at all. Because we're a people of faith. We just believe what scripture says. We don't need science to say we have produced something that is eternally begotten. I'm okay with that. It's the same way that we can't point to anything in creation and say the Trinity is like that. There's nothing in this world that's like God. And if we could find something like that, he wouldn't be God, would he? So... Uh, Coming back to the term begotten, I like the King James Version here. Normally, a little too archaic for me, too many these and thous for me. Um, kind of a tongue twister. Sometimes my kids have to memorize King James at the school they go to, and sometimes I'm like, and I can't even read that verse. Uh, but I like how they translate John 3.16 because the ESV translation that we typically use here at Grace switched this a few years ago, and they got rid of the phrase only begotten. And they changed it to his only son. So you know the King James. God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son. So just the fact that it's a part of our DNA should, I think, alone be reason why. Don't touch it. If you want to touch the these and the thous, uh, go ahead. And phrases like with a view to an administration of. What in the world does that mean? I have no idea. You want to move those things around? Fine. But I think we got to preserve his only begotten son. Now, there's kind of two ways that people translate this word monogenes there. It's either begotten or unique and one and only. And so the ESV, English Standard Version, several years ago decided to change it to his only son. But I think what you call him son, you have to call him begotten. The son is co-eternal, co-equal with the father. 
But you can't say that John 3.16 teaches these truths if we merely say one and only son. Because you could end up like Arius, right? Arius would have said he's his one and only son. Created, but his one and only son. So here's the slippery slope, I think, if we lose the word begotten. Jesus does not have to be co-eternal and co-equal with God to be his one and only son. An only son could be a mere creation, right? God could have said, I want to create a son. That's exactly what Arius said. So I want to preserve that, uh, keeping that word begotten, uh, and because it ties us back to Nicaea. Um, Real quickly, we'll move on. We got five minutes and three pages, and we can do it. Okay? The rest of the Creed of Nicaea. uh, We'll see that this eternal relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is actually foundation to three other Christian doctrines. So it's very important. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, is foundational to these three other doctrines. See if you can catch them. In the middle, it says, Through whom all things came into existence. Everybody find that there? Through whom? Somewhere. The things in heaven and the things on earth, who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead, and in one Holy Spirit. And the, the following, we've talked about that the last several weeks, are those statements where they're denying uh, what Arius said. Those quotes there are phrases that Arius actually said that the Nicene Creed is denying. So, Notice the phrase there, though, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Here's what Nicaea is saying. You cannot have a Christian concept of creation unless you have a Christian concept of the Trinity. You do not have a Christian cosmology unless you have a Christian theology of the Trinity. You do not have a Christian concept of the world unless you have a Christian concept of God. Where have we seen this before? Remember Gnosticism? Your view of God determines your cosmology and how you view the world. You've heard me say this time and time again, that the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Nicaea is saying that Jesus, God's own son, created the universe. And we see that in passages like what? John 1? 14. Yeah. 14. Any other, any other chapter 1 passages where it talks about Jesus creating? Colossians 1? Hebrews 1? Key passages for Nicaea. You do not have a Christian concept of creation unless you have a Christian concept of the Trinity. You do not have a Christian cosmology unless you have a Christian theology. And you do not have a Christian concept of the world unless you have a Christian concept of God. But Nicaea continues the phrase there, who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered and arose the third day, ascended into heaven. And so here's the second doctrine you cannot have if you're not Trinitarian. Soteriology. Salvation. Soteriology. So your salvation is actually linked to your belief in the Trinitarian God. You have no salvation, no gospel, no forgiveness of sins without the distinctive Trinitarian God of Christianity. Because who came down for your salvation? The son that Nicaea has been talking about. The second person of the Trinity who is of the same essence as the Father and is eternally begotten from the Father. Who lived a perfect life for you and died a bloody death for you? None other than the one who is of the same essence as the Father and is eternally begotten from the Father. Who came back from the dead? Who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven? None other than the one who is of the same essence and nature as God the Father and is eternally begotten from him. That's what Nicaea is saying. So you have no concept of salvation or the gospel unless you understand that the eternally begotten Son of God is the one who accomplished it all for you. So we have cosmology depends on the Trinity. How we view the world. Creation depends on the Trinity. That's doctrine number one. Then we've got soteriology or Salvation, it's the word for salvation, Greek words, 
uh, soteros, soteriology to save. Recreation then, as a human being being born again, depends on the Trinity. And now the third, did you catch it? He comes to judge the living and the dead. And so you have no eschatology unless you believe in the personal properties in the Trinitarian nature of the God that we serve. You have no eschatology unless you embrace Nicene Trinitarianism. No prophecy. Why? Because it's the one who returns at the end of time to judge the living and the dead and to send some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. He is none other than the one who is of the same essence of the Father and is eternally begotten from the Father. So everything distinctively Christian begins with the doctrine of the Trinitarian God and the relationships between the persons therein. Now think about that. That's why they labored at Nicaea. Because this was the centerpiece of our theology. The Trinitarian God. And those three phrases, we we skimmed over them because we looked at them last time. Those three phrases in quotes are direct quotes from Arius. Nicaea is shooting him down. But there's still one more phrase to look at. Did you catch it? It says, we believe... In one Holy Spirit. And so by the time they finish hashing out what it means that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, those at Nicaea are dog-tired, and they barely have just enough energy left to say, we believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they spent three months. We're trying to do this in one class. They spent three months with 320 plus pastors and bishops and presbyters and theologians talking about paternity, filiation, spiration, all of this stuff. And they finally get to the Holy Spirit. And they say, what are we going to say? And they're like, I miss my family. Let's just say we believe in the Holy Spirit. And they will eventually come back to this in time. Uh, it will be spelled out in the Council of Constantinople about 50 years later. They'll come circle back around and talk more about what we believe about the Holy Spirit. But they're tired. And so at the Council of Nicaea, the church condemned Arius as a heretic, condemned his teachings, said they are outside the boundaries of the Bible. But the church would continue to battle Arius for the next 50 years after Nicaea. His teachings continued. They kept playing his songs on the radio. People kept having him speak at conferences. His books were still getting published. And yet, in 381, at the council in Constantinople, uh, it'll finally be the death knell for Arius. And they'll kind of put it Arianism to death until it surfaced periodically throughout history because... That's what heresies do. They, they die for a little while and then they're resurrected and they come back and um, they just change their hair and their clothing, but it's the same. So next time we'll be, we almost did it. We're just two minutes past. Next time we'll begin looking at a group called the Cappadocians, the Cappadocian fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus. And these men will spell out in more detail the relationships and the personal properties that exist between the three persons of the Trinity. And they will teach us how to talk about the persons of the Trinity. Okay, any final questions or comments? That was a lot. You guys drank from the fire hose and seemed like you were tracking with me unless you just thought, keep nodding or he'll keep going. (laughs) There's plenty of information on your sheets for you to study. Google these terms. Lots of articles will pop up. Stuff on Ligonier about the eternal subordination of the sun, etc. And wherever you land, that's fine. Uh, I just wanted to address this and talk about it because it has come up in recent years. Uh, so I am great. Well, going back to what you were talking about, about uh, Jesus in the garden, you know, before he was taken away. Um, I know you kind of, you addressed it, but uh, I just kind of... I don't, it's not that I, it's not that I have a problem getting past it. I'm just like wondering, um, was it just an object lesson for us? I mean, because I mean, he had he knew, you know, everything. No, I mean, it was real for him in his humanity. In his humanity, it wasn't just an object lesson. It was like, I don't want to do this right. in his humanity. But he knew the outcome. He knew the outcome, but yeah. in his humanity, he has two natures, and we'll talk about that more in the next councils that come. They start talking about these two natures are united can't be separated, divisible in any way. And so in his humanity, 
Jesus doesn't know everything. What does he say about his return in the Gospels? Only the who knows. Okay. In his humanity, he did not know that. But as God, did Jesus know that? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. if he didn't know that, so he doesn't know everything. Heaven, your son, he, he knew. I'm saying he knew and didn't know on the earth. Oh. <laughs> so if you think this has made your brain hurt, wait till you start thinking about the two natures that, are, that Jesus has and how they're united together and how three heresies popped up and how the church dealt with them. But what we can say from Scripture is that he has two natures, God and man, and those two natures are united in one person. And so at the same time in his in- incarnation, he knows when he's going to return, and yet at the same time, he doesn't know. <sighs> right? That's why he said, thy will and not mine. Yeah. Yeah, because he has two, two wills, two natures at work there in the garden. Uh, as God, of course, he wants to do this as humanity. And part of that isn't just to give us a migraine. It's to let us know that we have a Savior who suffered like we suffered. He know He wasn't immune to suffering. He wasn't Im- immune to pain. He stubbed his toe. You guys have heard me talk about this. We'll talk more about his humanity. I mean, he, had, he would get migraines. He would throw up. He was very much a human like us, except for what? One thing. What? He didn't sin. He didn't sin. So everything else. Sleepless nights. He wanted to take a nap like me today, and I only slept for 45 minutes, and I was planning on like at least two hours, and it just didn't happen. He had times where he, I told you all I love naps this morning, he had times where he was woken up from a nap. So he was absolutely like us in every way except sin. So once we get past the, oh my goodness, this makes my brain hurt, we then move to, he understands what I struggle with. He understands my suffering and my sorrow and my pain. Instead of just coming and saying, I'm God like the docetists would have said and I just appeared to be here. He took on flesh for us so that he would know what it was like to be like us. So that he could be what Hebrew says, what a great merciful high priest. So when you go to him with your struggle, even with sin, he can say, I know what the temptation is like. Even though I, was, I never gave in. And so once you get over your migraine, it's like your brain hurts, but your heart can find comfort in the fact that he is just like us in every way except sin. So say, well, the God and man, two natures, we'll talk about later and see how the church dealt with the three main heresies that popped up. That will be a few classes down the road. Barb? I have a question from last week. Is that right? Uh-huh. This morning, we had, I'm Westminster Catechism. It, you know, it's who is God. Yeah. And, and the first thing out of the shoot is God is the creator. Yeah. Is that defining? I mean, you were, you were saying that he is, he should be defined by yeah, 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 and that and that's the New City Catechism, and they're kind, they're trying to pull together like the Westminster. Uh, Confession of Faith and the Catechisms and probably like the London, 1689 London Baptist Confession and trying to pull those together to give uh, a catechism to the church that doesn't land on issues that tend to divide and separate denominations. So they're beginning with Creator. You know, we talked last week we should begin with Father like this. I, and I don't think they're, they're intentionally doing that. I think it's probably just thought they thought we'll start with Creator, you know. Not thinking they should have consulted me first <laughs> before they put it together. But that's them trying to like, we want to be in the middle and make Presbyterians happy and Baptists happy. And they're trying to, you know, Tim Keller did it, who, who is a Presbyterian. And, and he did his best, I think, with those working with him to try to make something right in the middle that everybody could affirm if they don't end up using the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession and things like that. So yeah, and ideally, God is Father, you know. But then, but then, for us reading on Sunday morning, then it becomes this long thing where we have to read all of my notes from last week. So great question, though. Yeah. So I wish they would have consulted me. Um, I probably wouldn't have had the answer. So anyway, let me pray for us. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you tonight, and we've talked about things that make our brains hurt, and we don't fully understand it, but your word says it, and so we believe it by faith that you sent 
your son, that he is begotten from you and that your son and you sent your spirit and we don't understand everything that all of this involves, but we humble ourselves and say we worship you and we thank you for saving us. Uh, Keep us humble when we disagree with people. Help us to be more open to other views and say to people, you can have that view and I have that view and I have this view and we can be brothers and sisters in Christ. So would you help us to be humble, Lord? Let, Let these rich doctrines and this rich theology humble us, Lord, because it doesn't humble so many people, Lord, and we don't want to be prideful, so help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Thank you all for coming.